God, we give you all the praise and the honor this morning, and we're grateful for the opportunity just to come able to sing and praise your name. And today, as we dive into worshiping fully, I pray that our hearts are open to what you'd have to say to us today. We pray it all in your name, Lord. Amen. As we, uh, as we are seated right now, I would normally dismiss our kids, but with the Advent conspiracy, there are so many things that there are options there. We actually have all the kids in there the whole service today. So if your kids haven't gone yet, they're welcome to go back right now. But I think everybody has, has sent their kids. And I want to start off with two things this morning. The first thing I would do again, I want to say thank you for being here and being a part of our service, uh, both online and in person. Grateful for the opportunity to be able to be here. And, uh, you know, I, I hope that you got our Thanksgiving card this week. I'm not sure if you did or not. If you didn't, it's because we don't have your address and we need to get that on file. But we are thankful for each and every one of you and just being a part of the family of Paragon Church. Second thing, I, I told you this already, but we are in the Advent season. This is the first Sunday of Advent. If you've done the candles before uh, or any of that, this is the first Sunday, the Sunday of hope. But we are going to do things a little bit differently today. And we're going to be doing differently through the entire Advent season. As a matter of fact, we're going to take, instead of going the traditional hope and love, and joy, and peace, we're going to do things differently. Now, the great thing is, is it's 2020, and everything this year has been done differently. So this isn't going to be really that different, because we're just going to be doing things differently. And in the process of that, I mean, when you really think about it, what has this year been that's been normal? School has been done differently. Church has been done differently. Um, work for many of us has been done differently. Uh, even if you tried to go to the stores in the last couple of weeks, that has been done differently. So as we look at this, I think it's actually going to fit pretty well to do things differently. I started thinking about Christmas about six weeks ago. And in that process, I started thinking about what it should look like as a church. And, and what has church looked like really for the past 10 years that we have been doing Christmases at Paragon? And even prior to that, as I've grown up in church, what did church look like? And generally, church focuses somewhere for the majority of churches that I've been at, as well as probably the majority of churches that operate. Advent, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, has been either the central theme or at least a theme that, that plays into it all. And that is that love and the hope and the joy and the peace. And, and that really is, I think, what we want this time of year, is it not? That is something that we want and we wait for, that coming arrival, what Advent stands for, the coming arrival of the hope and the love and the joy and the peace that is found in Jesus and the celebration of that birth. This year, it seems like it's a little bit different, though. This year, it seems a little bit different, but there's one thing I think that is still the same as every other year. We want this time of year for our lives to focus on the birth of Christ. We want our lives to focus on Christ himself, especially in this season. But the problem is there's a tension, and that tension is there every year. The tension is there every year for us, and it's should our hearts be focused on God, or should our hearts be focused on the commercialism of Christmas? And there is a tension there because I'm not sure if you're like me, but on Black Friday... It used to be one of those things where everybody got a newspaper. The only time the newspapers ever sold out is on Thursday. 
Because everybody would get all the ads and they would figure out what stores they were going to go to and they'd figure out all of those little details in it all so they could go and stand in line. Now we just get to stand in line anyway. But the, the thing is, is that there's that cry out of, I need to get the perfect gift at the perfect price for that perfect person so they know that I love them. That is a narrative that is screamed in our world. So here's the question. What Christmas narrative is most important in our lives? Is it narrative number one that says you have to be the holiday MVP? As a matter of fact, I got a Black Friday email from fanatics.com that said, be the holiday MVP. Buy this stuff so everybody thinks that you're great. Is that what we want? Is that the narrative that we want to fall into? This is what you need to be satisfied. You need a Lexus with a big red bow. That's what you need. And we have to have that for at least this Christmas season, because next Christmas season we're going to want it again. It always seems to be that way, isn't it? And, and, and we know that that narrative isn't exactly it, but it is forced on us constantly. I told Christy, I said, I probably got... 150 Black Friday emails. And she said, you need to unsubscribe some different things. I said, no, they're like from five different things. That's all I have. But they all just boom, every hour, on the hour, just try to load me up. I said, there's got to be something different. There's got to be a different way to do it. And there is. That's the first narrative, that commercial Christmas mentality of this is what we have to have to make everybody happy. There's a second narrative, and it's the biblical narrative. The narrative of Christmas, which means and tells us that this is actually a meaningful, hopeful, loving time of season that brings peace and life and love into our lives. That is the, the thing that I think we want. We believe this story is not only just positive and good, but that this story, this narrative, actually has changed the world and is still changing the world. But the problem is, like I said, there's this tension. Story number one or story number two, which one do we celebrate this time of year? They don't mix well together, so how do we bring it together and, and say, we're going to put our life and our focus on narrative one, the commercialism of Christmas, or narrative two, the biblical version of Christmas? And like I said, there's that tension, and every year, it's a battle that I think too many of us lose, because we know what we want. We know what Christmas is about. We've sat through Advent services. We've sat through Christmas services. We've done all of those things. We even listen to the songs on the radio that sing about the birth of Jesus. We know that's what it's about. Yet, that constant bombardment by everything else that's in this world pulls us away. And we give in to the first narrative instead of the second narrative. And then on December 26th, you know what we do? We go, man, I'm worn out. That wasn't worth it. I have no hope. I have no peace. I have no, none of the things that Christmas is supposed to bring. And now I have an expanded debt. All for presents that most people didn't really want. Did you know they actually took a survey that said 46% of people lie to tell you that they're excited about the gift they got from you? 46%. Almost half the gifts we give aren't even wanted. And that made me go, what are we doing? We're missing what it is. We keep doing the same thing over and over again. And like I said, on December 26th, we go, maybe next year. Maybe next year I'll get it fixed. And then next year comes, and guess what we do? Same thing. That tension's there. 
There's a quote that's been attributed to Albert Einstein. Not 100% sure he actually said it, but it sounds good, so I'm just going to go ahead and go with it on that. It says, you know what the definition of insanity is? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Doing the same thing over and over again. And, and we've seen that even for the last eight months. Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. We, we, we're pushing that in our lives and saying, this is what's going to happen. But that is the reason why I said six weeks ago, we have to do Christmas differently. We have to make, dare I say this, Christmas great again. When we really stop and think about it, this whole Advent conspiracy is about making Christmas meaningful again. And so this Christmas, we're going to join that conspiracy, not in terms of a conspiracy theory, because we don't need any more of those. There's plenty of those going out there. But the actual word conspire means to act in harmony towards a common end. So we're going to join together as a church, and we're going to join together with multiple other churches. Because if you go up to that adventconspiracy.org, it will tell you all the churches around the world that are doing this. And we're going to join together with them to conspire to share the true story of Christmas, not the fake news narrative that the world shoves at us. That this is about Jesus. First and foremost, it's about Jesus, the good news of Jesus. And we're going to embrace that by looking at the four aspects of the Advent conspiracy. Number one, worship fully. That's what we're going to talk about today. Number two, spend less. Number three, give more. And number four, love all. That's what we're going to talk about for the next four weeks. We're going to break those down and take a look at that. But here's the reality. Did you know that Americans last year spent over $1 trillion on Christmas alone? $1 trillion on Christmas alone. And I got to thinking about that Going back to that 46% that didn't even want, half of that is spent on things that people don't want. What can we possibly do better? How can we change our hearts? And, and to, before we get into the spend less and give more, we have to change our hearts. And as we look at that change of our hearts, I think it has to come down to that one word, and that is worship. Worship. Worship fully. And we need to start here so we get our hearts in the right place. And so we're going to start with worshiping fully. Would you pray with me that we are just in the right place mentally to hear this? Because, again, that tension is there. And sometimes we'll hear about these things and go, nah, that doesn't have to do with me. I pray that each and every one of us open our hearts to what God would have to say to us today. Father, we are so grateful, again, for who you are. And today we want to come to you in worship. We want to come to you and even learn how to give our all, go all in on worship. Because sometimes, God, we try and reserve it to just a Sunday morning or, or just an opportunity to watch online or just a small part. But it is our lives. And we want to give you our lives today. And we want to give you our hearts today. May you open them up so we can hear what you have to say to us. Pray in your name. Amen. As we start to transition into worship, I've, I've asked Dave Moore if he would come up and read for us a psalm. Uh, not a poem, by the way, a psalm. And, and the, the Psalm 95, actually many psalms, talk about worship and talk about what is necessary. But I would like for Dave, if you don't mind grabbing this mic right here so people online can hear you as well. But we are going to hear Psalm 95, verses 1 through 11. Would you listen as Dave reads it for me? Psalm 95. Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. 
Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand, and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his, he made it. His hands form the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Thank you, Dave. As we read that, there's so many things that you'll hear. We'll, got, we'll talk more about it throughout the message this morning. But I just kept thinking, worship fully. Worship fully. Going all in on worship. Maybe you've heard this passage said by me before, but when Jesus talks about love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Going all in. For as obvious as this is as a Christian, we should know these things, but we struggle. Again, there's that, that tension that is there. That these thinking or these thoughts feed that tension. Do we go all in or do we chase after the things of the world? And I think it happens because we forget what we actually have. We forget who we actually are. We forget whose we actually are. You know, it, it's funny, I was thinking about this the, the other day, um, and, and it got pointed out even yesterday as we were decorating here. As, as you look around, you'll see the red and the green lights that are all the way around the outside there. And uh, um, somebody came up to me and said, hey, are those sconces new? And, and I said, no, they've, they've been here since the very beginning. Uh, they were here, they are one of the few things we kept in this building when we moved into it. And the thing is, is when we become very complacent or we become kind of numb to all the things that are going on we miss the the obvious we miss the little things you know we forget how great God is because we become complacent we become numb to who he is and that forgetting when we look at Christmas causes complacency about God complacency about Christ and even complacency about Christmas, but I want you to stop and think about this for just a second. I want you to stop and think about God. Who is God to you? Think about God and who He is. I want you to focus on His attributes. We're coming off of a week of Thanksgiving. One of the things we talked about last week is as we came to the table is we need to celebrate the victory that we have in Him. We talked about how we need to, to really Focus on who he is and what he has done for us. And now everything that you're imagining, everything that you answered in that question, who is God to you, I want you to multiply it by infinity because that's how much greater God is and then even what your mind could possibly grasp. And then now what I want you to do is I want to take all of that amazingness that is God and I want you to cram it into an infant baby. 
and that's Christmas. All the amazingness of God. God becomes man, the eternal, everlasting, almighty, unchanging, the the ever-present God, the, the, the creator of everything, puts on human flesh, is born as a baby just like you and me, all for the purpose of redeeming mankind. Does that blow your mind? It absolutely should. And if you're like, oh, well, that's because we become complacent. It's because we've forgotten how awesome Christmas really is. How awesome it is that God would do what he did for us, for his creation. I mean, it should fill us with awe and wonder. When we think about the, I wrote this word, and I'm not even 100% sure if it's real, unfathomableness inconceivable is a better word I think we could use in here. Because when we really stop and think about it, it's mind-blowing, inconceivable. We can't wrap our heads around the fact that God, who created everything, would step down into his creation and live with us. And he did it. So what should our response be? Apathy? Complacency? Or should it be full, all-in worship? And I guess maybe the important thing we have to figure out is, is what is worship? How do we define worship? And I started to think about it. I started thinking, you know, I think we're confused on what worship is and what worship isn't. So maybe let's start with that. What worship is not? What worship is not? The first thing I wrote down here is worship is not an event. We call this time as we gather together our worship gathering. If you get online, you'll see it says online worship gathering. Other churches call it their worship service. Many churches call their buildings the house of worship. But here's the thing. It's not an event. Because the reality is, whether you show up here, whether you tune in online, just because you are present doesn't mean you're worshiping. And there's lots of times that we've done that. Maybe you're already thinking about it too because I talked about all these Black Friday deals and you're like, well, my Black Friday thing expires today. At least that's what the 12 emails I got in the last five minutes said that everything expires today, so I gotta get online and get doing that. See, sometimes our minds can be out of places. So worship is not just an event. Jesus actually echoed these words in Isaiah in Matthew 15, 8 and 9, where he says this to the Pharisees who are just going through the motions and going to the event. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Verse 9 says, they worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines, human commands. The question is, have we become those people whose hearts are far from God? Worship is not just an event. Also, here's a big one. Worship is not just music. Music is actually a vehicle that takes us to the place of worship. But it is entirely possible to sing worship songs and still not be worshiping. Right? We've all gone through the motions of singing the songs. Even sometimes we'll put our hands up. Even sometimes we'll tap our hearts. Even sometimes we'll get to that place. But it's not happening because our hearts are still far from God. Worship is not just a performance. See, we live in an entertainment-driven society that loves to give stars or reviews for things that are going on, a thumbs up or thumbs down rating. But we need to be careful not to see our worship or even our events or our music as a performance to be graded rather than worship to be given. And we have a tendency to do that because 
we start thinking this is about us. And somehow it's how it, it, it affects us. But this isn't about us. Worship is not about us. Worship is about what we give, not what we get. But a lot of times, there's a Francis Chan quote that I just love. And it said, a, a lady came up to him and said, Pastor, I didn't particularly like the worship today. And his response was, that's okay, we weren't worshiping you. We have to remember that. We're not worshiping us. We are worshiping God. It's not just a performance. It is not just a feeling. Here's the thing. I can stir up emotions for you if you want me to. I can make it emotional. I can have the right mood of lighting, and I can have the right mood of background. We can choose the right song. We can do all that to give you those special tingles. And the, the, where the hair stands up on your arm, all those little things like that. But just because you get that doesn't mean that you're worshiping. We have to be careful in that definition. Worship is also not confined to one day a week. We cannot take all the above things that I just said that are all vehicles for worship and all parts of worship but not worshiping themselves. The thing is, we can't cram all those into one day and hope that it doesn't get smothered under everything else that takes place the other six days a week. And we have a tendency to do that. And all, I went to worship service, so I'm good, therefore, I don't need to do it anymore. That's, that's not worship. So what is worship? I've already mentioned it. Worship is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. We've already said it's not an event or a once-a-week thing. 1 Corinthians 10.31. You've probably heard it before. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. I'm just going to confess to you I'm not a biblical scholar. I'm not a, a master theologian that really, really digs deep into these things and goes, see, here's the Greek and here's the Hebrew and all that. But I do see the words here, everything, whatever you do, and maybe you have a different translation that uses the word all. There's not a lot of deep study that has to go into those words. It says that your life is or it is not. It's not something that, that we really mix up. And so as we look at that, we have to realize there's not a lot of gray area in when we should or should not be worshiping him. It's in everything we do. Second thing is, is worship is response to God. When we worship God, we're responding to him. We, we are responding to him. In 1 John 4, 9, it says these words, or sorry, 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. We are responding. Our response to God's love and mercy and grace is to declare his worth in worship. As a matter of fact, that's where the word worship comes from. To give worthship, to, to ascribe worth to. And so that's our response to him. Also, worship is heartfelt. I know I said it's not emotional, but it will touch on your emotions. Look, look at what it says in John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. He says, but there's an hour that is coming. And it's now here when the true worshipers will worship at the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Genuine worship is not an emotion, but it will affect us emotionally. Worship is that which values him above all else. The definition of worship, I told you already, to ascribe or declare worth or value. Last week, went to the post office shipping whatever place to send Camden his Christmas gifts because it's been taking a little while to get him stuff over there and he's in Okinawa, Japan. And, and so we did that. Well, when you go and you have to ship overseas, you know what you have to fill out? A customs form. And on that customs form, you have to put every item and every item's 
worth on that. I didn't realize they print that on the label. So when he got his Christmas box, it told him everything that was in that box and the value of it. So when he got it, he wasn't exactly surprised by the Christmas wrapping. Okay, it wasn't like, ooh, what am I getting? It's what one is this in it all. But as I began to think about that, I began to think about, you know, we have been given this that tells us the worth of God, that tells us the worthiness of Jesus, that, that has told us all of the things, but do we care? Do we truly know what we have? The absolute worth of what and who God is. And even a better question is, is do we live like it? See, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment is, I told you already, Mark chapter 12, verse 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And all, again, means all. Why do you think this is the greatest commandment? Because it's the most important one. Because it's the one where, where our worth should be given to God. No one thing, no one person should be of higher value to us than God. We must love God with more. Here's another thing. Worship is a choice. Worship is a choice. I told you, you have a choice between narrative number one and narrative number two. The commercialism of Christmas or the Christ of Christmas. We have a choice. And we're all going to want to say, I want narrative number two, the Christ of Christmas, but what does our life say? What are the things that occupy my thoughts? What are the things that drive my life? What are the things that I worry about? Where's the place that I find my value? What is it that we have? We have a choice. And God wants us to choose to magnify Him in every moment. I already mentioned this one. Worship is also giving. It's not getting. A lot of times we want to say, ah, I had the greatest experience at worship today. I hear some churches actually call theirs the worship experience, and there's things that make me cringe, and that's one of them. Because it's not about our experience. It's about us being the participants, us being the contributors, not the consumers, us being the ones who are on stage giving it to God, not being the ones in the audience and God giving it to us. It's got to be switched it's about giving and not getting. So really, even in that, the second question, we move from what is worship to why do we worship? And the simple answer to this is this. We worship because of who God is. We worship because of who God is. Let me take it a step further. Praise is a response to what God has done. And we do praise and worship music. You know, that, that's the title we give it. But praise is a response to what God has done. Worship is a response to who God is. We praise him in response to his works, but we worship him for who he is. You know who he is? He's God. I don't even know what else to say. He's God. And so we worship him because of that. We don't worship him because he's what he's done or how my situation is or how it affects me. We worship him because he is God. It's not a conditional response. We worship him because who he is and what he is to us. I had Dave Moore read Psalm 95. And it's so many different times it tells us in that passage of who God is. I look at verse 1. He says, He is the Lord. He's the rock of our salvation, worthy of our worship. 
Verse 3 says he's the great God and great king over all other little g gods worthy of our worship. Verse 4 and 5 talks about how he's the creator of all things. Again, worthy of our worship. Verse 6, part of that creation is us. So therefore, we bow down. We kneel down before the Lord, our God, our maker. I'm not sure if you do you version, but that was the verse of the day today. I'm like, oh, that's weird and coincidental. Because that's where we need to be as we worship. Verse 7 says he is our God, which makes it personal. And he's taking care of us. It tells us why we should worship. And that's just one small smidgen of the book of Psalms. And in it, you go even further in the Old Testament, lots of times it tells us. And then even more so, you can go into the New Testament, it tells us why we should worship God. Why we should worship Jesus, His Son. Because Jesus is Emmanuel. We'll talk about that more, I'm sure, during this Christmas season, right? And we all know what Emmanuel means. It means God with us. God with us. He is our Savior. He is our Redeemer. He is God revealing Himself in the flesh. Therefore, we worship. Check out what Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says. The sun is the radiance of God's glory in the exact expression of His nature, sustaining all things by His powerful word after making purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We worship Him because of who He is. We worship God because of who he is, and we also worship because of who we are. I'll just give you a couple of things that the Bible says. We'll go back to Psalm 95. In verse 7, it says, He is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. He is the shepherd. We are the sheep. He is the creator. We are the created. He is the king, we are the subjects. He is the master, we are the servants. He is the vine, we are the branches. He is the owner, we are the possessions. He is the potter, we are the clay. The Bible goes on and on and on, but you know what each and every one of those things says? That he is and we are not. That he is above all and we are a part of that all. And we need to respond because of it. We are not the objects of worship, he is. The chief end of our life is not worshiping ourselves. It is to worship and glorify God. That leads us from the what to the why to the how. How do we worship God? Well, we can continue to look at Psalm 95 here that, that David read, and, and we see the hows repeatedly. It says the word, let us. You know what that tells me? We do it corporately. We do it together. Or it says sing and shout. I know that's something that some of us are a little bit more reserved. We grew up Baptist or something along those lines, and because of that, we sing and shout and clap and dance and all those things. You're like, what? Yep, the Bible actually says that's the things we're supposed to do. I'm not saying we're getting all Pentecostal here or anything like that, but the reality is that is how we worship. We worship physically. We worship verbally. We do these things. We can continue to look at just Psalm 95 to look at that, but instead, because it's Christmas season, why don't we look at the Christmas story and see how they did it? So if you have your Bibles with you, I know I've talked like little verses here and there all throughout, but if you have your Bibles with you, I would love for you to go to Matthew chapter 1 and then keep your finger there because we're going to flip over to Luke chapter 1 back and forth and look at the characters on the how-to. And I'm going to talk about the specific people and specific things that they did, but every character I mentioned this morning, I think does them all. So we'll see that as it plays itself out, but I'm going to point out specific people and what they did. Matthew chapter 1. Starting in verse 18, we're going to look at Joseph and how he 
worshipped. Says the birth of Jesus Christ came about in this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Verse 23, see the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now check out this verse. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son and named him Jesus. When we look at this passage, it's a passage that we've heard a thousand times. Some of you probably have read it on Christmas Day because it's just part of the narrative that we do. The motions maybe we go through, the complacency maybe we have towards it all. But I want you to see it fresh because I want you to see what Joseph and the rest of the characters do here. The first thing we see here is that he worshiped through obedience. He worshiped through obedience. He did as the Lord's angel had commanded him to, to worship the Lord fully. We need to be fully obedient to his commands. We need to be obedient to his commands. And sometimes it's easier than other times, isn't it? I mean, when you really stop and think about it, look at Joseph here. It's probably not easy. I mean, stop and think about it just for a second. You know because of who he was and because of what he has done and the wife that he's about to take on, the culture that is surrounding him, there's going to be rumors. There's going to be people that talk. There's going to be small town chatter. If you ever grew up in a small town, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. The small town chatter that's there, people talk. And as they do, it's not generally positive talk. And, and you're going to see that take place right here. And for nine months, and probably well after that, as Mary's belly begins to grow, there's going to be that negative chatter. And yet he's still obedient and doesn't take on that worry. He says, this is what God has called me to do. So he responds in obedience, and he's basically saying with his life, Lord, I trust you because of who you are, and because of who I am, I will obey. Question for us, I guess, is how we do it in that area. Next, like I said, keep your finger in Luke chapter 1, and go over to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 26 through 38. It's another familiar passage, but this is how Mary responds. It says these words in the sixth month. The angel Gabriel sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will become the son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, How can this be, since I have not had sexual relationship or with a man? 
And the angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her when she's been called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. So as we see that, here we see not just worship through obedience, but worship through submission. Worship through submission. Mary submitted herself to God's will. Now we might think, well, what's the difference between submission and obedience? They, they do tie together, but submission is an inward act where obedience is an outward act. Submission is submission of the heart and obedience is showing it through our action. And you know, like I said, I believe all the different characters are showing all the different things we're talking about today, but we're focusing specific on that. So Mary worships through submission. The shepherds, Luke chapter 2. Just go to the next chapter over on this one. And as you see in Luke chapter 2, you're going to see in verses 8 through 20, a group of shepherds. We can get into all the detail about shepherds in another time, but I just want you to see this right here. It says, in the same region, verse 8, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at the shot of the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to the people he favors. When the angel had left them, they returned and returned to heaven. The shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. After seeing them, they reported this message and were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which is just as they had been told. Here we find some cool things that the shepherds are doing. But basically it boils down to this. They worshipped in faith. They worshipped in faith. And really, you can go back to the Psalm 95. They also worshipped verbally. They worshipped physically and even corporately. They brought it all together. These shepherds were initially terrified, but they responded with action by taking the word of Lord in faith and responding by hurrying and going and finding Jesus. So now we have worship in faith. We have the worship through submission. We have the worship through obedience. And the last one I want to look at is in Matthew chapter 2. Excuse me. As we see Matthew chapter 2, we're going to see one more group of people. Excuse me. As we see that in Matthew chapter 2, it's verses 1 and 2 and 9 through 11. And it says these words. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, on the day of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews, for we saw his star and his rising and have come to worship him. Skipping down to verse 9, it says, After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen, 
at its rising. It led them to until they came and stopped above a place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the, the child with Mary his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So our wise men from the east, they sacrificed. They worshipped through sacrifice. And while we see this in all of our characters, I think there's two ways that we see specifically here. There's something that we've talked about even with our five core statements. I can't outgive God. We've talked about our time, treasure, temple, testimony, and, and our... Um, one other T, sorry, just blanked on it. You can go out on the wall, I promise it's out there. Um, our talent, that's the other one we're talking about. So as we see this, we see two of those big ones show up with the wise men. And that is this, time. This is not a short journey. This isn't something they just were like, hey, let's go and do this. This is months of travel. It's estimated months of travel on camel. I don't even like to travel in my car for that long. But traveling on a camel for that long, there is time that is involved, and there's so many different things they could have been doing with their time. We ever had that tension in our lives? So many different things we could be doing with our time? But instead, they answered the call of Jesus and went and worshiped him. Second thing was treasure. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. I don't have to go into all the details about it. I'm sure you've heard of it. These are expensive gifts that are being brought. And they're very relational gifts, and they're prophetic gifts, even in a way. And so we see these gifts that come down, and they could have done anything they wanted to with their treasure. But they chose to bring it to Jesus. And I think that comes back around to our tension that we talked about up front. Do I follow that world's narrative and give my time and my treasure to things that are way less important? Or do I follow the biblical narrative and give my time and my treasure to the thing that is most important? Do I give my worship to that? And I'll close with this. As you think about those things, these are two quotes from famous theologians. One, C.S. Lewis. You've probably heard of him before. But listen to what he says about worship. He says, true biblical worship so satisfies our total personality that we don't have to shop around for man-made substitutes. Every email I get, is a man-made substitute. Then there's a guy by the name of William Temple. He says this, For worship is submission of all of our nature to God. It's the quickening of our conscience by His holiness, the nourishment of our minds with His truth, the purifying of imagination by His beauty, the opening of the heart to His love and the surrender of His will to His purpose. In all of this, gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable of. Therefore, the chief remedy for that self-centeredness, which is our original sin, and the source of all actual sin. Our worship takes the focus off ourselves and gives it to Christ. In the traditional Advent season, this is Hope Sunday. This is the thrill of hope. And if we are going to have hope, let me just say this, we are going to have to hope in Christ for a change in this world. The world as we know it, I'm going to break some news to you, all right, is falling apart. The superstructures and the systems, they're literally crumbling all around us. And the only thing that we have is Christ, that solid foundation. And now is the time for Jesus Christ to be seen in the world, for God to be experienced again. For some, 
again for the first time. And it's going to happen in us, and it's going to happen through us. The world is not going to be made better with us going out and consuming together. The world is going to be made better when we go out and do it differently. Where we go out and we worship and we show that worship and to show the love that we have for Christ. We have got to make Christmas great again. And we do that through Jesus. Only Jesus can change this world and it happens one heart at a time. That heart is given in worship. I pray that today, that even as he is speaking, that he is changing you in what and how and even why we worship. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your words. And we pray that even today that you come and dominate our hearts. That you come into our lives and make yourself more known than ever. I pray for my own apathy. I pray for my own complacency. I pray for this tension that is in my heart and in my head as I look at the things that this world has to offer so I can be the holiday MVP. And instead, God, that I can turn my attention and turn my focus to you because you are worthy above all else. God, may you be glorified in my life and I pray that for each and every person at Paragon Church, I pray that for each and every Christian, that as you are glorified, the people of this world will see that it is about so much more than just stuff. That this is about God coming to earth, putting on human flesh, all for the redemption of mankind. God, for that we give you praise, we give you honor, we give you glory. May our lives reflect it. We pray it in your name. Amen. I'm going to step off over here to the side, and I would love to pray with you. I'd love to have a chance to talk to you about who Jesus is, about why it's so important that our lives reflect it. But maybe you're just where you're at. Maybe you're online. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, I just need to get my heart right. Well, that's between you and God. So I tell you, take this last song that we sing together and find that time. Just get your heart right between you and God.